I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with David Hunter, a professor of epidemiology and nutrition at the Harvard School of Public Health. We're discussing genome-wide association studies and their potential clinical utility in common diseases. Dr. Hunter, in a new perspective article, Bell and colleagues begin with the high expectations that many people initially had for genetic and genomic research, and then the current skepticism about its value for finding effective therapies for common diseases. We've been hearing about that disappointment for some time. How much is it affecting research in the field in terms of interest among scientists and potential funders? Well, Stephen, I think it's only disappointing if we started with unrealistic expectations about the speed of the development of therapies, uh, given it can take decades to develop a drug after targeted identification. And we're really only 10 years out from the publication of the full human genome sequence and five years into the era of genome-wide association studies uh, the jury is really still out on whether the newer findings on germline or inherited variants will lead to drug development. Uh, in the cancer world, however, we are starting to see the successful application of drugs developed for a specific somatic sequence mutation in a specific type of tumor, uh, those drugs being used in some cases of different tumor types in which the same somatic sequence mutations have been found. So that is one area uh, where uh, the availability of the human genome sequence has already made a difference to therapies. Cancer genes aside, the authors of the Perspective article argue that the real value of genome-wide association studies lies in their illumination of human biologic pathways, and that illumination may ultimately lead to identification of targets for therapeutic interventions. And this is also something you argued in a Perspective article you wrote a few years ago. Can you tell us uh, about some of the more exciting biologic findings that have been reported and that might lead to interventions? Sure. Actually, actually the authors uh, give several of the better examples, but there are other examples. Uh, so, for instance, uh, researchers working on Crohn's disease uh, established that genetic variants in genes associated with the uh, function of autophagy were associated with Crohn's disease, and that's pointed into a whole new direction of both underlying biology and potentially therapeutic development uh, in that process uh, leading to Crohn's disease. Uh, the uh, canonical first major genome-wide association study finding was the finding of an association with uh, a variant in the complement factor H gene in uh, H-related macular degeneration. And so, again, that's pointed very strongly in the direction of inflammation and the response to inflammation with respect to the most common cause of blindness uh, in developed countries. There's, there's another area in which, you know, biology, I think, has really been uh, revolutionized by these genetic findings. Uh, just 10 years ago, really, most of the focus in genetics was on the less than 2% of the genome that codes directly for exons or the protein coding uh, sequence. And the genome-wide association studies gave us the first clue that there was a lot of biology to be found outside the protein coding part of the genome. So the first uh, initial survey of genome-wide association study variants found that only a very small minority were actually found in the classic protein coding parts of the genome. About 40% were found in introns. About 40% were found in intergenic regions, so-called gene deserts. Uh, this is the so-called junk DNA that many people argued wasn't even worth actually sequencing and spending money on getting the sequence of. 
And uh, we now know that what we used to think was junk uh, is in fact actually very rich with biology that uh, a much higher fraction of the genome is transcribed into RNA than we previously uh, suspected. And a lot of that is uh, essentially uh, determining regulation of the protein coding genes. So the genetic findings have really opened up a whole new field of biology. And uh, it, it also explains one of the other unexpected findings from the initial Human Genome Project, which was that, uh, as humans, we actually have less protein-coding genes than a banana, uh, not many more than a humble worm. And uh, most people thought that we'd have some large multiple of genes, but somehow we've been able to take a small number of genes, smallish, about 21,000, uh, and use that repertoire in ways that make us more complex beings. And that's almost certainly got to do with the fact that the intergenic regions are coding for RNAs that switch genes on and off, bring them together in protein complexes. And that's a whole new world of biology that's really been opened up in the last decade. Bell and colleagues stress that even if a genetic variant confers only a modest risk of a disease and leads to only a subtle alteration in biologic function, a drug mimicking the activity that that gene produces can have a much more powerful effect how fruitful has that kind of translational work been? So again, it, it's fairly early days if we're looking for these findings having translated into drugs. Um, we can do the thought experiment, however, which is that a lot of the targets of drugs that we already use in the clinic, uh, such as in diabetes, uh, the drugs that target the sulfonylurea receptor or target PPAR gamma, uh, these are drugs that were developed before these genetic findings, but we found uh, variants in those genes that are associated with small risks of diabetes. So uh, looking at it in retrospect, uh, if we hadn't had those drugs already, these genetic findings would have been signals that those genes would be of potential interest for drug development. So I think there's a, a vast array, uh, almost a bewildering number of findings now that have to be sorted through. Uh, but in there, there will definitely be targets in which there are relatively weak genetic variants in terms of causing disease. But manipulation of those targets uh, by drugs may have powerful effects. As you pointed out in your uh, earlier article, getting from genomics research to therapy requires pursuing many complementary approaches in parallel. Among those, you listed resequencing of genes in many patients, manipulation of disease genes in cell and animal models, phenotypic studies, application of Mendelian randomization in large data sets to link variants to clinical outcomes. Are all of these approaches being adequately pursued? It's always easy to argue for more research. Um, I would argue that they probably aren't being adequately pursued, but I think there's a little more excitement now than there was even a few years ago. Uh, particularly for the genome-wide association studies, one of the disappointments that you referred to earlier, I think, was that the degree of elevation in risk was often very, very small. And uh, the genetics community that was used to single gene disorders where genes like uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2 convey 20-fold uh, or 30-fold increased risks of breast cancer at young age. 
So that's 2,000 or 3,000% increases in risk. Um, we're a little skeptical of the utility of these new findings where the increase in risk was uh, 10% or 20% or 30% elevation. And it is a little hard to, if you're a busy investigator, to retrack your whole lab uh, to chase the biologic significance of something that has a 10% elevation in risk. But as we've already discussed, uh, the degree of strength of the association of the variant with the disease doesn't really tell us much about the potential biologic information that we can derive from the knowledge that the gene is somehow important in the disease. And, and you can even sort of turn it around a, a little bit. Um, if a mutation in a gene was so devastating to have a, a strong effect on a common disease, then it's probably been selected against over time. Uh, so one of the reasons that some of these uh, point estimates of effect are relatively weak uh, might be because the, the, that gene is really important and, you, and we can't tolerate a very, very strong uh, effect. Complex disease often has strong environmental contributors. Is that a serious limitation for translating genomic research into therapeutic approaches? It does limit the proportion of the causation of the disease that can be said to have a strictly inherited genetic basis. However, it doesn't, as we've discussed, mean that if we can understand that genetic basis that the findings mightn't have important uh, therapeutic potential. I think, you know, when we start to think about the environment, though, there, there is another aspect to this that uh, many public health workers get nervous about, and, and, and that is the idea that in our enthusiasm to convey the potential of genetic findings, um, we may also convey a sort of genetic determinism where uh, we lead to the implication that lifestyle and environmental influences aren't uh, strong or major causes of disease, and that could lead to a kind of fatalism in our patients and our populations. So, so it is very important to keep our eye on the fact that for many diseases there are environmental or lifestyle modifications that reduce risk of those diseases, and uh, the genetics uh, in many diseases isn't the major determinant of uh, disease causation. Finally, do you have any predictions about which common diseases will benefit soonest from the fruits of genomic, genomic research? You know, that that's the fascinating thing. Uh, we've learned that we really can't predict. The, the diseases with the variants with the strongest effect, uh, like age-related macular degeneration, uh, Crohn's disease, you know, these are not diseases that 10 years ago people were putting their money on having the strongest uh, genetic associations. So it's really only by doing the work that we discover where the strongest associations are. I, I think there is another um, really important application that Bell and colleagues uh, don't really concentrate on with respect to some of these findings, and, th and that's the whole area of pharmacogenetics. And uh, in the journal, you've published some of the major findings in the last few years. We, we now have genetic variants that uh, modestly predict uh, people who will develop a myopathy uh, or myositis after they get a particular statin. Um, we've got the story of HLA variants and abecavir uh, as a treatment for HIV. 
Um, we've got a, another HIV variant that's associated with uh, carbamazepine for the treatment of epilepsy. Uh, one of the reasons we don't have more of these is that a lot of the initial studies have not been about drug response. They've been about diseases, and that's perfectly appropriate. But I think as we get larger data sets, assemble the sort of studies that are needed to look into drug efficacy and toxicity, we'll probably discover a larger number of genetic variants that have an influence on whether someone should or shouldn't be given a specific drug or maybe what the starting dose of that drug should be. And, uh, you know, I'm firmly convinced that when the price of getting your genome sequenced falls to $1,000 or less, and uh, reputable people say that that's really only a year or two away, that many of us will get our genome sequenced. And it's that area of drug response and, and tailored therapy rather than disease prediction that is probably going to be the area that's going to be most of interest to patients and physicians. Thank you, Dr. Hunter. Thank you.